Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Clive Addison. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments, great pyramids and superstructures were lauded, listed and visited as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week, Deadly Sins and Snow White's Dwarfs, there were always seven of them. Later lists of Magnificent Sevens have included other man-made structures such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal, industrial wonders or awe-inspiring phenomena of the natural world such as the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the journalist, writer and broadcaster David Aranovich. For many years, David has been a regular columnist for the Times newspaper, commenting on political and topical events and controversies. He's also won awards for books on political subjects as well. In fact, David, you seem to have been immersed in politics all your life. Is it right you were brought up in a sort of Marxist household? But yeah, perhaps yeah. you're a bit closer to closer to centre left nowadays. We, did you rebel against your parents, or just sort of <laughs> de- develop things as things go along? <laughs> no. Well, my pa- my parents were communists, and my uh, my dad um, joined the the Young Communist League as a kind of poor East End Jew in the late thirties, and it kind of, on the basis it was either that or fascism, and uh, on the whole, yes. communism seemed a better bet for a Jew. Um, uh, and uh, my mother, who came from an altogether different. Uh, kind of family she was a rebel she was a rebel against her english uh, upper middle class background and she also joined the communist party kind of loved russia during the second world war second front etc she was very young uh, and they were both very young but he became a full-time worker for the communist party and so our house was a sort of place where communists came to meet and to have socials and virtually everything we did was uh, surrounding politics and uh, and the communist party so i was just simply brought up into it um uh, but the thing is that my generation, your, yours and my generation, Clive, mm. we were we were liberals, really, weren't we? I mean, so I, I, I instinctively sought for what, don't laugh at this, what, if you like, was the kind of liberal bit under the sort of left-wing communist label without realising. So things like women's liberation and gay liberation and um, uh, anti-racism and so on were the sorts of things that motivated me when I was a, uh, when I was a teenager. And you could do all that in the Communist Party. The Communist Party was not bad about those kinds of things. I'm not talking about the Communist Party mm. of the Soviet Union, which was probably bad on two out of the three. In fact, it certainly was bad on two out of the three and so on. So it wasn't just... Uh, but, I wouldn't say I kind of... There wasn't an epistemological break like that. It was just sort of, yeah, well, if you're a liberal, you'll tend to like this and like not like that, and that's not really quite where people who like Lenin are. Um, and so you sort of ease yourself out. Right. Anyway, so you, you, you went to Oxford and uh, Manchester universities, and I think you're involved in student politics, but I, I'm just wondering, since you're so interested in politics, did you ever think about going into politics, you know, as a, you know, an MP or, a, or whatever, rather than 
theorising or commenting on it? <laughs> well, I was president of the uh, of the National Union of Students and I was sort of part of something called the Broad an Alliance of Communists and Labour people and Liberals uh, uh, and so on, which ran the... So that National could have Union been the students. first step on your way to being a cabinet minister. Of course, and for others it had been. I mean, um, a predecessor not that long before me was Charles Clark, who became Home Secretary and Education Secretary in the uh, Labour government. And just before him, there'd been a few years before him, there'd been Jack Straw, who'd become became Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary. Um, and I think it was sort of believed that people who did what I was doing, being in the NUS, um, it, I, could, I wasn't obviously going to become an MP because at the time I was still a communist, and there weren't any communist MPs by then. And no, I mean, I remember going out canvassing when I was a kid and we thought it was great if the local communist candidate got you know 1.4% of the vote so there weren't there weren't many of those around but when I was at the NUS and president and it was quite clear that communi- you know British communism was coming to an end uh, uh, and so on it's before the fall of the wall I did go out with the shadow education secretary for 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 uh, lunch at an Indian restaurant and Neil Kinnock for twas he said to me Oh, you said, have you ever thought about joining the Labour Party, which is a proper kind of political party, and becoming an MP? And at that moment, the moment he said it, I knew it was not for me. It was a kind of, oh, right. it, was just, it was just a kind of moment. I thought, I'd have to go to a selection meeting and pretend that I agreed with people. And I don't like agreeing with people when I don't agree with people. I like saying... I disagree. I mean, it doesn't mean I won't change my mind, but I'm not going to change my mind simply for the purpose of convincing you that I'm your person. And all of a sudden, as soon as I imagined that scenario, I thought, I can't do it. Perhaps we'll come back to that, but we, sh- we mustn't postpone looking at your seven wonders. Um, so what, what's your first one? Well, I know what your first wonder is, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it because it comes as a bit of a surprise. Some of your other choices, very interesting choices they are, but this one... A, a pickup truck or the pickup truck. Why have you gone with that? Um, I, when I was a kid, I liked soldiers, uh, you know, little soldiers playing with little soldiers, and I liked to kind of have guns uh, and so on. But one of the toys that I really quite enjoyed, and it was t- it's taken me some time to realise why, was the pickup truck. There used to be little pickup trucks. Do you remember them, Clive? That you could wind. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, the winch on and a little bit of thread would wind the the hook oh, yes, in and out yeah. and, you, and yeah. you could sometimes attach them to something and pretend that you kind uh, you kind of pull them. Well, I I had mumps badly as a kid at the age four, and I think the present I was given to kind of get me over this was a pickup truck, and I remember sitting. In the window of our, my parents' bedroom, with the, on, on, by the on the windowsill, with this pickup truck, winding it in and winding it out, and thinking, what a what a useful thing this was. It was nothing war-like about it. There was nothing kind of no no one was going to get killed at the end of it or anything like that. It was simply useful. It went out. Things are broken down. You attach this nice winch to it, um, wound it all in, and then took the thing away to be mended. And it struck me that this was an entirely kind of even then. So this is almost like a a rosebud moment, isn't it? This is something in your life uh, that you were (laughs) attached to in time of crisis, in time of mumps. Uh, So are you, is your wonder that pickup truck or a toy pickup truck that takes you back to your childhood self? No, it is pickup trucks generically, either as toys or as the real thing. Um, and by the way, a rosebud moment is always kind of tricky when you know what rosebud was supposed to be. Um, yes, uh, but well, I, know I don't what you mean, mean it in that direction. Yeah, um, I'm just, I'm just, 
I'm just re- I'm just referencing a bit a bit of film <laughs> referencing to to expand our repertoire here. Um, but but because uh, I I think of you as a man of letters, a man sitting in front of a computer, writing, thinking, opening books writing books not out on the fields as a as an agriculturist or or even a redneck you know the, the sort of person who might a good old boy let's say who might have a pickup track and driving around either in america or in the countryside with jeremy clarkson over here no that, that, that that's true but a chap can always fantasize uh, Clive, yes. um, you can always, and, and of course, there's, there's an element of me that always admires very slightly, not more than very slightly, somebody who is like that and who is practical and who does that. You know, like you always kind of admire ambulance drivers, or because mm. yes, I do sit at uh, sit at computers, and yes, I do think about things, but deep inside, quite a lot of the time, I I, I, I think not that circuit deeply inside either. How much actual use am I? <laughs> If if I was to disappear tomorrow, how much less would the world be? Um, mm. uh, and the answer you kind of you partially feel sometimes is well, it's very kind of people to be nice to me, and it's very kind of people to read what I write, and it's very obliging of them to occasionally say that they agree with it. But the truth is, if we simply, if I simply vaporised off the face of the planet, apart from immediate family and friends no one would be the whit worse off. Whereas the man or woman with the pickup truck, when your car breaks down, that's somebody you will miss if they're not around. Yes. Um, well, that's, that's true. That's, uh, that, that's, if we reflect on that, we just think about we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need farmers, uh, doctors. Um, maybe doctors, almost the only of the, uh, the uh, sort of middle class professions that are, are really needed. <laughs> the rest of it. Uh, while you've touched on this, though, and I don't mean to sort of rub it in. Um, what about newspapers themselves? Because you write for newspapers. I, I've been travelling around a bit uh, recently and I've noticed even more nowadays. I, I like to read a newspaper and I get to a town somewhere and it's, you know, middle of the morning. I want to settle down with a cup of coffee. I want to buy a newspaper. You can hardly buy a newspaper anymore. You've got to go to a, a Tesco Express or a Waitrose or something. News agents don't exist. And there's there's only people my age wandering around trying to find it. Are you worried that the whole you know, journalism profession, uh, to an extent, is, is going to disappear. Well, I mean, there was a point, I think about three years ago, certainly before the pandemic, where the number of online subscribers the Times had tipped beyond the number of um, newspaper hard hard copy mm. subscribers uh, and i imagine that's only got more that's only been, you know been been more since then so let's imagine for a moment let's put an arbitrary figure that two thirds of people now pick up the times essentially online that doesn't mean mm. there's not enough for you to want to continue to make some print copies and you know there are hotels for example etc like to have them and trains like to have them and so on but there is little doubt that everything is moving online um, mm. and that most of the journalism probably most of the journalism that I do is absorbed online even if it even if it's radio journalism frankly um, it's likely to yeah. be picked up on uh, on a computer on a podcast or certainly it's very unlikely to be listened to at the exact time that it's broadcast I mean I don't know what the mm. figures are for the various programs that, that that you do and how many are listened actually at the moment of but we're all podcast now so we all kind of you know we all go out at odd times and I say to people on the radio show I do on Radio 4 um, you can listen to it at 8 o'clock tonight or in perpetuity as a podcast forever <laughs> and ever 
<laughs> Never ending. There it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so a pickup truck. I, it, uh, it makes sense now. I know you were you were sick in bed for a while. Yeah, but the second the reason. Second reason. The is... second reason is that in two thousand and four, I was sent. Um, a very rare thing for me to happen to Iraq, a year after the invasion, um, to go to Baghdad with a with a dodgy satellite phone, a booking on a uh, four wheel drive out of Amman. Uh, in the airport, when I waited for the flight to Amman, there was a big story coming out about how contra- these various contractors had been uh, murdered in a town called Fallujah and then hung from the bridge in the place that I was just about to go to, um, and so on. And the insurgency was really kind of get really getting going at, at that stage. Anyway, um, pick up in in Amman. Um, uh, the hire vehicle, I'm not driving it, a Jordanian Palestinian is driving it, and he then drives down to the border with Iraq from Jordan, and then, at a, literally 100 miles an hour steadily, down the road, the motorway uh, that the Ba'ath Party built between the two, all the way along you can see these pylons that have been pulled down by the rebels uh, and the insurgents. At one place where he stops for uh, petrol on the way, you can see these people with guns sitting in um, uh, sitting in various vehicles. And one actually comes and takes a look at us, but he's off. He can outstrip them 100 miles an hour. Anyway, long and the short of it is, as we head towards Baghdad, we're probably about 40 miles away, the thing breaks down, Clive. You, know, mm. you hear the engine go, boom. And there we are, all of a sudden, not heading towards the green zone in Baghdad, not going anywhere, but Christ knows where, by the side of the, by the, side of the road. Mm. And he is bricking it, this driver, and mm. I'm not far behind him. So we sit there for a while, and he kind of tries to work out what to do. The satellite phone doesn't work. I can't get a hold of anybody, and we're, and we're there. You so can't then, call the AA. Can't, can't call the AA. A car slows down, and it's got three young men in it, uh, and they can see what our plight is. So they tow us a little bit further. I don't know where they're going. I don't understand what they're saying. And they stop, and they leave, uh, and they say that you can now, you can now stop here. They say, and I look uh, across the road, this motorway in in Iraq, and I can see that it's Abu Ghraib prison which is run by the Americans. They say, you can go there to the Americans on the other side of the motorway. I think, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there, um, uh, please. So what they then do is they somehow call it, they then drive off in their car and come back with a pickup truck. It's a, yes. With a pickup truck. The pickup truck hitches itself to our, uh, to, to our four-wheel drive vehicle that can go 100 miles an hour but is now actually stopped in this incredibly mm-hmm. dangerous place, actually very close to Fallujah and very close to where these guys were hung from hung from the bridge. And we enter Baghdad backwards on the f- pickup truck in this vehicle from where I somehow managed to get a taxi into the, um, uh, uh, the, to, to the Hotel Palestine, where, which is actually behind concrete walls, and I can start my work. I, could, I have never been so scared in my entire life and right. never quite so close to danger. And I kind of feel that I owe my existence to a pickup truck. 
All right. Well, that's a very good reason for a pickup truck. It's a childhood memory and it saved your life. So there, there okay. can't be a better reason for it to being a, a, a one of your wonders and indeed your first wonder. Uh, I, 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 I suppose I can't let this go by without saying you were unusual as a as a commentator at the time of the Iraq uh, invasion. Uh, uh, you were in favour of it. You you spoke in favour of it. Is that is that something you you now regret, or do you think uh, there still are reasons why the invasion happened that would justified it? Oh God, I mean, you know, nothing that I've ever written about or thought about before has been turned over so often in my head. And this thing was, I knew what Saddam Hussein was like because of various things that happened when I was president of the NUS to Iraqi students as a result mm. of what his regime was doing. So when it became obvious that there was going to be, a, he was going to be toppled, I thought his regime was one of the worst in the world, probably the worst in the world, and he was the most murderous person. What I sort of mm. thought was, I can't get into the position of opposing him being toppled. That's kind of ridiculous because he's the worst person in the world. But you kind of edge yourself into a position that if you don't say that, of saying, well, in that case, I'm going to have to go along with it because you follow the logic of what you yourself have said, despite the fact that, you know, you can have really big uh, problems with uh, um, uh, with what might happen as a result. But there's no doubt um, that, and I thought about this afterwards, if I had realised what would happen subsequently... I think I would certainly have used my pathetic counsel to say, let's be much more careful about it than that. But what people forget is that this was actually an American decision. It wasn't a British decision, uh, actually. So whatever we in Britain would have said, that it's almost certain that that would have gone ahead at some point or another. But on the other hand, unlike other mistakes that people make, at least this one had the, had the result of toppling one of the worst people in the world. Um, but... That can be scant consolation to a lot of other people. Mr. Blair, good evening. Evening. Would you have invaded Iraq uh, with all these tens of thousands of uh, lives lost if you'd clearly known there were no weapons of mass destruction? I would still have authorised the invasion, yes, because I believe that Saddam was in breach of the United Nations resolutions and that the evidence does show that. Well, bearing in mind the fact that the tens of thousands of wholly innocent men, women and children have died as a result of the invasion of Iraq, tell me, Mr Blair, how do you manage to sleep at night? I don't suppose I'm, whatever I'm going to say is going to convince you of this, but I also bear in mind that there have been mass graves uncovered in, in Iraq with the remains of over 300,000 people. Your second wonder of the world, though, David... Well, a second wonder of the world is actually slightly related to that. Um, it's Lise Doucette. Um, yes. And it's for two reasons. Firstly, because of the name. Um, I don't know what it is about Radio 4, but you must have noticed it. It has people with the most euphonious names working for it, um, mostly women. Yeah. So for a long time on The World Tonight, there was Gudrun Dalibor and Mary <laughs> Fee Chicote. Uh, that I, I remember. And we have had all a Guerin for a long time, and we've now got Lise Doucette. And I love these names, and they're all women's names and so on. And they're, they're names that you don't know how they're spelt from listening to them. You have to see them written down before you know how they're spelt. So I like that as well, because that creates a kind of... You know, Clive Anderson, um, everybody knows how to spell Clive Anderson once you've said it. But yes. Mary Ficciacote... No, you don't even know which is where where it ends. Is it marry yes. Peachy Cote or yeah? yeah where's the break? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, it is a good idea to have an unusual an unusual name when and obviously 
Clive Anderson doesn't cut the mustard as far as that's concerned. Uh, yours is is quite a good one because, you know, David is about as standard a name that does for all purposes. Totally. But there aren't that many Aranoviches who are going to be cropping up in the papers or on the radio or, or in a podcast or whatever. So Lee's, Lee's Doucette gets sort of the name. But uh, given your experiences in Iraq and uh, exactly. your acceptance that a lot of your work is sitting at home uh, on a computer... We have to sit back and admire people who are doing the sort of thing you were talking about in Iraq on a daily basis in various theatres of war and uh, seems to be coping admirably. Exactly. You, you've gone to it with, with total precision, you know, the, the precision of uh, Iskander Missile or whatever it is, um, as I'm sure Boris Johnson would say. It sounds like one of his figures of speech, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, total precision. That, that's exactly it. I mean, um, various things that I do have, have meant that I've, been, I've interviewed Lise Doucette for various kinds of programmes in, in, in the not-so-recent past. Uh, look, you know, she was in Afghanistan in August... Mm. was least to say, in Kabul, yeah. uh, and so on. Somehow flies in, somehow gets around the place, etc. And then she's in Ukraine. Um, and she is fearless. And she, but it's not just that she's fearless, because she's not reckless either. She was reckless. She, you know, all kinds of things would have happened uh, to her and around her. She also knows exactly what she's, she knows how to do it. She knows how to talk to people. She knows how to interview people. She knows how to get in. She knows how to get out. And she, uh, 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 and she says she's kind of brave. I just completely admire it. And, you know, in mm. many, many ways, she's, again, she's useful in a way that yeah. I kind of cast doubt upon my own kind of usefulness. So she's, she, she, she is also like the pickup truck. She has real value um, uh, to, to, to the listener and so on. Um, and she has this euphonious name. So she's a wonder of the world. She just is. Um, I'd like to put a word in for some of the others as well, because uh, I mean, uh, you mentioned my name, but you know, Clive Myrie has uh, cropped up in these war yeah. reporting. And I think he's making the name Clive cool again, which I don't think it has <laughs> been for many decades. <laughs> we shouldn't forget Kate Ady, you know, because she was doing this sort of thing uh, years ago. And uh, I suppose John Simpson, you've got to mention John Simpson. Again, a pretty standard name, but uh, he always liked to be at the... Uh, the centre of action. John Simpson like dressed up in a burqa to go into Afghanistan back in yeah, 2001. Yeah. I mean, imagine yes. it. Yeah. I mean, it does really brave um, and yeah. so on. And you're right about Clive Myrie. Um, there's Jeremy Bowen, absolute kind of uh, a veteran. Just, you know, he's, he, you know he's, he's in his 60s now, I believe. And off he goes, off to Kiev and so on. And then out to all these dreadful places where things have been happening in order to uh, report upon them. Uh, and there are other people like him. Uh, so you're right. So she stands in in many ways for all those others. But there is, as you, yeah. as you were suggesting, a kind of particular kind of woman war reporter who, I don't know, it's... It, it, it seems, maybe it shouldn't uh, in this day and age, but it seems all the more remarkable, really, given what she will have had to have got to in order, gone through in order to get those jobs. Although you will then say, well, look at Martha Gellhorn, look at this kind of long tradition of incredibly brave women re yes. war reporters, and of course you'd be right. This is what victory sounds like in Kusair, the guns being fired in celebration, the cars blaring their horns as they clog the central square. The Syrian army is declaring victory, but at what a price. Kusair is now destroyed. Lise Doucette, BBC News, Kusair. Well, you've done two of your wonders, both, uh, it turns out, serious uh, topics. Uh, the third one is maybe less serious. Uh, how can you possibly say that? 
How can you say that? <laughs> this, this uh, I've been uh, um, a football fan for since I was a boy, and actually, the person who got me into being a football fan was called Clive. Oh, right, Clive Matthews at school when I was ten told me I had to support a football team and brought out a whole list of football. Shows. I don't know where any of them were, and two of the ones that mm. were left to be chosen were Wolverhampton Wanderers and Tottenham Hotspur, and I liked oh. the sound of both of them. I didn't know where either of them were. I didn't know that Tottenham Hotspur actually was quite a local team to me. But I've been listening to Henry the Sixth Part uh, One on and Harry Hotspur on my transistor radio at home, age ten, because yeah. that's the kind of kid yeah. I was. Um, I think you probably were doing the same thing, and I um, said so that's the one I chose. And then after that, I was lost, and I went to my first right. match in in the mid seventies. Uh, the year Spurs were relegated, so I followed them all the way through the kind of terrible times and so on. And then, time, you know, times coming back. I've never seen a really huge... I've seen a few cup wins, but I've never seen... Th- and taken part almost entirely in the kind of business of fandom, not in the sort of horrible chance and so on that people didn't kind of quite, you know, I had my own kind of you know, nice uh, sanitised versions of being a football fan, uh, uh, but nevertheless really, really, really keen. To cut a long story short, Clive, and it is a really long and boring story, there comes a point where Spurs begin to get good again after a long period mm. where I'm supporting of being bad. And this is epitomised for for me by a couple of wins which happen against teams that we've not won against for a very long time. But not only do we win, we win, we score the winning goal in the fifth minute of injury time. So my wonder is the 95th minute winner. It's not like a winner you've scored in the 61st minute and held on to. You know, yes. the other side, the other side fans think they're in with a real chance all the way through until the point where Aaron Lennon against Chelsea or whoever it is pops up and scores that goal. And that moment when you realise not only have you just scored, but you almost certainly can't be scored against again. And the, your team has won this match against these arrogant, horrible opponents who always otherwise beat you. This moment of triumph of and release is... Honestly, there's no sex in the world which is better than that. There is no moment that is better than that for anybody. The 95th minute winner is... My wonder of the world, a wonder of the world. I think. I think. I think Spurs have had winners against Manchester City, is it? Leicester, and there was a. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It was a ninety-fifth minute one. There was a uh, European game a season or two ago. Against, it was. It was uh, ninety. It, it was ninety-seventh minute. Yeah. So I, 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 <laughs> the, the the winner against Ajax in the semi-finals of the Champions League in twenty nineteen is one of the. I mean. I think there were people probably who must have died during the course of celebrating that goal. Can't, can't see how it would be otherwise, but died yeah. ecstatic. Um, yes. uh, it was just absolutely... So you're right. There are a number of cases of this. There have been a number of cases of this this season against away against Manchester City. Remarkably, not just a 95th-minute equaliser, but a 96th-minute winner against Leicester. So, But that's asking for too much, and that's never that almost never happens, but... 
Now, and uh, does that make up, does the excitement of the last minute winner, does it make up for the 94 minutes of tension and agony and, oh, no, we've thrown this one away or we're not going to win the points, we're not going to go through, whatever it is? Because I've had this discussion with my son sometimes and because I, I say, OK, it's finally the last minute winner, but it, it's been a miserable afternoon or evening before that. Well, can you imagine? I mean, my, I, my oldest daughter is now 31. Um... Uh, but I've been taking her to football as a Tottenham since I, since she was eight. She's been through yes. it all. But also her mother, when we have come back, and her other sisters and so on, have seen us come back in a kind of variety of states of disconsolation uh, and so on. Yeah. And, and I've actually always... I don't, I don't think we've been bad-tempered and awful when we've come back, but somehow or other we've lowered the temperature around the whole house when we come back from a match like that. You know, kind of, you know. Yeah. So, you no, know, losing 5-0 at home to Liverpool or something, you know, that kind of thing. Ben Davis with a tackle. Here's Son. Sissoko. Here's Deli Alley. Here's Lucas Moura. Oh, they done it! I cannot believe it! Lucas Moura with the last kick of the game! The Ajax players collapse to the ground. Tottenham Hotspur are heading to the Champions League final with a goal that we just couldn't believe. Your next wonder of the world, David. Yeah, well, so relatively... I mean, I've always had a kind of interest in art. One of the things that we used to have at home when I was a kid was books, a few art books. We had Dura. I don't know where these had come from, from kind of relatives mm. had left them in the in the dim, distant past. And one of them was a book, of, and one was Hogarth, and one of them was a book of Rembrandt's paintings. So from a very early age, I was familiar with Rembrandt's paintings. But in the kind of background, and mm. the way you are when you're kind of brought up with something, you don't kind of look at it very much. Much later, after all this kind of life, you know, being interested in politics, in the last five, ten years, I've become much more interested in art um, and the history of art and so on, and um, have really enjoyed it. And gallery hopping has become a really kind of enjoyable part of my life and getting to know a bit more yeah. about it. Um, and I was standing in the house, for the first time for a while, I went to the house at Kenwood in North London. Um, and it yeah. has actually a few superb paintings, but one of them it has is a Rembrandt self-portrait. And I don't think there is any self-portrait like Rembrandt self-portraits. I mean, I can't think of one. I mean, there are lots of good self-portraits by other artists in history. Of course there are. But there is something so poignant and affecting about the gaze with which Rembrandt looks out at you and therefore presumably looked at himself while he was painting himself. Mm. The way in which those eyes are painted, there's an honesty about it, a kind of, you know, you just, it just looks straight through itself in a way. And I just had to add it. I just think it's extraordinary that anybody, and I suppose, so this stands in for the human capacity to construct fantastic works of art which reflect things about humanity and say things about humanity beyond the capacity of words as I have just demonstrated very adequately I think to adequately describe them <laughs> well I, I your wonder as it came to me was Rembrandt's eyes so I didn't I didn't know whether it was Rembrandt using his eyes to look at other things so to turn into art or the, the painting that he makes of eyes, or both, uh, which you have in his self-portrait. Um, I I can't. I don't know which self-portrait is in uh, Kenwood House. Is it a, one of his later ones when life yes. was 
turning yeah. a bit sour for him and uh, financially and uh, in other ways. So it is it, they, they are soulful and but quite gloomy. Uh, uh, he did quite a few of himself, didn't he? Yeah, do you know, it's quite funny, really. I mean, yes, by gloomy, you mean he didn't do that many of him kind of grinning, um, herself yeah, well, grinning, and that's, and, that's, and that's true. Or maybe the kind of younger ones sense a kind of endless possibility of things which actually a lot of which weren't actually possible i mean it's it, you, you i mean since we're aging men clive um you begin to i'm not you begin i mean just you just accumulate a series of sadnesses you can't not um your parents die people you know die you suffer you know um th- th- things happen around you which and you become and you become much more aware than when you were younger unless you've had those tragedies happen when you when you were younger of just sort of depth of of things which human beings have to experience um as they as they go through life it seems to me to be truer to be melancholic in a in a self portrait in a mm. funny kind of way, particularly as you've got older, than it would be if you were, you know, the Laughing Cavalier by Franz House. Well, that's all very well for a night out on the on the jollies, etc. But most of the time, especially after the age of fifty, when you look in that mirror, what looks back at you has probably a bit more sadness in it than it has joy. And that yeah. doesn't mean there's no joy in it, but... What about all his other paintings? Because he, he did quite a range of things, whether it's the, you know, the Night Watch or landscapes and other <laughs> other portraits. Are you, are you a, generally speaking, a Rembrandt fan? I, I, oh, I yeah, must definitely. say I am, I think. To stand in front of his paintings in Amsterdam or wherever, in addition to, um, you know, here in London, is an extraordinary experience. I, I think it's it is wonderful. I mean, you know, everybody talks about. It. I mean, as with Caravaggio, you're looking at this kind of miracle of light, um, which mm. he, which in almost all his kind of great pictures. Uh, but what was really good fun about Night Watch in, in in Amsterdam in the Rijksmuseum, of course, was how was how it came to be a different sort of picture in some ways when it was cleaned. And mm. restored, and all of a sudden, it wasn't really a night watch at all. It's a, it's a day watch. That's, <laughs> it was really, kind of a bit of a day watch. Had that's got right. dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah at the very yeah. Le- at the very least, a late afternoon watch. <laughs> you could could argue even kind of early. That's that's right. And things appeared from out of the kind of you know the total from the crepuscular shadows um, of the sides yeah. that people hadn't seen for a century or more because of the way in which the yeah. varnish had been applied and so on, and gave him. Um, a, 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 the other um, uh, other characters and other things, but you know, p- paintings like the Jewish wedding and uh, and so oh, yeah. on, full of humour. It's which I mean, I don't really have the words to describe. I'm not an art critic, and I'm not really very good at. Neither is some brilliant people like Valdemar Januchak and Bendor Grover, who are fabulous at being able to describe what they see yeah. and have the words to do it. But um, there is something transcendent. Woo! and marvellous about this and I just appreciate it more and more as I get older This Mother's Day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Right, uh, excellent. Rembrandt's eyes in all its all their glory and all their gloomy, um, or roomy maybe. Um, <laughs> roomy. What's your next one? <laughs> wonder of the world. Well, this again is a kind of late enthusiasm. Uh, my, it's my fifth, isn't it? It's my, my fifth one. It's bacteria. Yeah. Uh, 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 just a few years back, I began to get interested in the business of what they call antimicrobial resistance, which you'll know a bit about, which is the problem. My my grandmother who I never met died when my mother was seven she died from a gnat bite in a garden in 1930 um, mm. if she'd been bitten in 1945 she'd have survived and the reason she'd have survived is we had penicillin we had basic antibiotics by then um, uh, antibiotic resistance or antimicrobial resistance is the business of the fact that we are running out we are creating resistant bacteria uh, much faster than we have any capacity to create new antibiotics mm. to treat them. And this is becoming is going to become a real big problem. So people will, unless we're careful, and we should do certain things, die of the things that my grandmother died of again. And so looking at that made me very, very interested. But it took me up to Liverpool to talk to um, Adam Roberts, who's a microbiologist, who explained essentially the business of what bacteria are and what they do and how you try to discover cultures um, which will tell you whether or not you are close to finding new antibiotics and new antifungals and so on. And it was just, honestly, it was just amazing. I'd never thought about it before. You know, I could be having those biology lessons, but, you know, uh, to, to put no too fine a point on it, at the point where we were doing this, we were being taught by um, a, a very nice biology teacher woman who had very large breasts and she taught on a blackboard. So we would get her to do a lot of work on the blackboard and lean against it. And when she turned around, she'd have two perfect circles on her jump. That, that's the kind of attention that I was paying to bacteria at the time. I mean, you know, this was North London circa 1971, etc. And I don't claim um, that we were uh, anything other than a bunch of little sods, actually. Um, but nevertheless, so I hadn't really taken... Um, uh, enough notice and you become aware of the absolute miraculous nature miraculous god and here there uh, sorry i used transcendent before now i've used miraculous i promised myself i wouldn't yeah. use either of these words of the extraordinary nature of how of, of bacteria and 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 then adam was describing how bacteria can evolve you know how, how the business of how they evolve mm. essentially to be able to defeat uh, anti uh, antibiotics um but also how certain antibiotics evolve and at one point he described it, you know, we tend to think of evolution as this incredibly long business. I mean, we're learning now during the COVID crisis, uh, uh, different, incredibly long business whereby you kind of gradually, your appendix gradually becomes your appendix because you didn't need to process cellulose. So over the millennia from the times, you know, when we were kind of, you know, uh, um, mm. grass munchers, etc., it gradually goes down. And we think of evolution essentially as that, something kind of accomplished over thousands and thousands of years. And by and large, that's true bacteria adapt like that they evolve mm. uh, you know they they 
something passes by a bacteria with a bit of DNA that the bacteria, let's, let's anthropomorphise this a moment, fancies, and they nick it. And bingo, you have a slightly different yeah. bacteria. It has evolved in a moment. Uh, so some yeah. evolution happens incredibly quickly. And when you grasp that, you be... Uh, so by the time we got into COVID, intellectually, I was prepared for what the thing could do because I'd been doing... The, and, and you probably knew it all along because you're mm. more, you know, probably better over this kind of thing. But I had had... Until that point, I had really had no idea. By the time COVID came along, Clive, having done this stuff yeah. on bacteria, I was ready for variants. Yeah, COVID, of course, is a virus rather than... Yeah, you know, it is, but it's an yeah, evolutionary... It's, it was the evolutionary process, but... No, yeah, yeah, right. sure, yeah, but, but it's in, in a way harder to deal with uh, than uh, bacteria. I imagined uh, when you put it, bacteria as the wonder of the world, you were not going to be concentrating on the sort of the, the nasty ones, the deadly ones, because there's an awful lot of bacteria that, uh, uh, you know, again, to put it in human terms or anthropomorphic kind of ways, you know, they're, they're doing us good. You've got uh, loads and loads of bacteria in our and our stomach contents that uh, are beavering away on our behalf, or at any rate, uh, do things that uh, benefit us. I assumed you were speaking up for bacteria, but in fact, you're just saying they well, no, I am. No, adapt no. to bring us down. <laughs> well, that but both things are absolutely true, and both things are true for for those kinds of reasons. I mean, I mean, it is interesting. I didn't think it was kind of delicate for us to discuss it too much on this program. But the gut biome business is absolutely mm. fascinating, and it is not something. I mean, when we were young, it wasn't something anybody ever discussed. <laughs> anyway, so bacteria, and they are. Um, you're right; they're very important. They're tiny little things, but that's that's the sort of the origins of life, virtually, isn't it? Just a little bit of DNA that replicates, and uh, and where that comes from, and how that got going, is is one of those still really a mystery as to as to how how that bit that creation of life actually occurred. If 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 there isn't a god to do it, then uh, then how did it get going? The other thing uh, about this is that this is simply also a metaphor for my own attempts in the last five to ten years to become in any way scientifically or medically literate. I mean, one of the things that uh, the great MMR debacle made me realise was just how pitifully ill-informed a lot of journalists were about uh, about scientific med medical things, and yet how often we did stories about them pontificated. And so well, maybe in the last 15 years, I've really made an effort to become more conversant. You know, I'm a typical arts boy, you know, sort of history. I can tell you when every battle, you know, and every king and queen, and so on. And absolutely, you really understood very little because I'd just been looking at the teacher's bosoms rather than concentrating mm. on the bacteria, etc. Like too many people. Um, so it also stands in bacteria for the whole business of us becoming and me becoming a little bit more literate about the world in which we live, which is something that we've all had to do, a lot of us had to do during COVID. Can I ask you this question? I was talking to somebody else who, uh, a while ago, who writes columns of newspapers, more tabloid than the Times, if you can imagine that. And he said uh, <laughs> uh, half the time he was desperate to say something. There was a topic that he really wanted to get off his chest. He had done it for nothing. That's once, once every other week. The other weeks... He, he still had to write something, and in a, in a tabloid way, he had to be really angry about things. But he really had to work hard to find something to be angry about. Do you ever have those sort of agonies about, oh, I've got too much to write this week, but this particular next week, I don't know. I'm, I'm the world's uh, jogging uh, along a bit. It's, it's, it's slightly different. Uh, for me, it's slightly different. I don't have to be angry, but the thing I have to do is not bore myself. Mm. I mean, I don't know about, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I, I find myself very easily boring. 
so if I want, if I leave a party early, it's not because I find them boring. It's I'm finding myself boring in people's company, uh, and I find this too easy. And it's 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 a kind of and it's a kind of fault. And what I find is, if I'm not interested in what I'm writing, I don't think it's got it's useful or it's or it takes us anywhere, etc. I become very dispirited. So. All I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that I'm a brilliant person and I really do try very hard to write brilliant things and I'm not like that person, what you just described, who I have uh, no time for. Do you find it easier Do you find it easier when there's a government, let's say, you're not in favour of, that you've always got something to pick at and to complain about? When, let's say, New Labour was in power, did you find yourself writing more supportive things of government policy, which was less less fun to write and less uh, less attractive to the readers. Oh, you mean like the kind of, you know, the book review you really want to write is when you get a terrible, terrible <laughs> book by a really famous person or you go to a play. I mean, I once I once had to do a radio review of the musical version of Gone with the Wind and it was yeah. so bad. And I thought, this is just, you know, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. It's so much easier than if this had been any any kind of good. Um, so in a way, I think, I, I think that, tend, I mean, you have to catch yourself out. You know, I mean, I did find myself very early on as a comment saying, okay, if John Major had done this, would I be saying the same thing as I'm saying now? Am I being, am I, is there integrity to, uh, to, mm. to this kind of thought process? But every now and again, it's absolutely true. It's nice just to be able to let loose um, mm. uh, on somebody. But by and large, you know, you ask yourself, don't you, is this actually true and is it sensible and is it, uh, you know, and, and if it's not, well, anybody could do it, really. Yeah. I just mean if, you, if you're broadly in favour of the, the person or the government in power and what they're doing is, well, you know, within reason, something that you would do if you were in power, just saying that isn't much of an article, is it? Whereas if you're saying, what's going on here? This is a scandal. This is a disgrace. This is going to end in tears. It's not, it's not just that it's easier to write. It's just there's something... It's, there's something to say. There's a there's a need for it to be said. No, it's it it is true. So I mean, but but, but there becomes a kind of problem. So uh, and it's it's really personified in the Boris Johnson thing. Okay, so Boris Johnson is the kind of person who Boris Johnson is, and people will take views about that. But by and large, at the time of the last election, I said and I thought and I thought it was true that the. The, the choice between Corbyn and Boris Johnson was the first time it's offered a choice between two prime ministers, both of whom I thought I could mm. do a better job as prime minister than. It was the first time I'd ever... You know, I even thought Theresa May would make a better prime minister than me and you know, et cetera. I thought I'd make a better prime minister, I still do, than either Boris Johnson or no. um, or Jeremy Corbyn uh, and so on. That's a very but, good way to put it. Uh, yeah. yeah, but once you've written that and once you've said that, there's not many places to go. So once you've said, as we'll, uh, as a lot of people have said in the course of the Partygate thing, he should go, there's nowhere else to go with it. <laughs> you know, mm. you're, you're, stu- you're stuck with that because whatever he then does, if that's what you really feel and you've written it and so on, everything mm. is a kind of slight kind of, what is a, a sort of, you know, hanging participle on the main word, which is bugger off. <laughs> you know, it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> well, um, I suppose you could always change, you could always not exactly change your mind, but say, well, I, I thought Boris or whoever it is was was being a disaster, was going to be a disaster, has carried on being a disaster, but oh, he's risen to this challenge to, to do that, or he's finally come up with a policy that I... Well, you'll find people, who, you'll find people who, uh, whose careers are founded on doing precisely that thing, because that is one of the well-known mm. colonist tropes. Um, like 
most of you oiks um, and ignorant pigs, I thought such and such, but I have now risen to a higher state of consciousness and have departed from this general mm. thing. Well, I, I don't know how we've got from bacteria to Boris Johnson, but we, we better move on to your sixth <laughs> wonder of the world. Via gut um, biomes, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> what is your sixth wonder of the world, David? This is um, the sixth wonder. This is my senescence, really. This is the only place and time that I really, really want to exist. This is my kind of Camusian moment. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Sitting there on the veranda of this villa that we've um, uh, rented a couple of times, and I would rent forever if I had the money and my wife had the patience to be with me there forever. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a particular moment. This, it's, it, this is a, a not a big villa. It's not a great luxury villa, but it's a nice villa with a nice long pool um, and so on. And it has a veranda that looks over a fairly a valley, a, a, a valley, and then in the distance is the sea. Um, in mm -hmm. June, the summer begins. Summer begins quite gently in Sicily, and the sun is beginning to warm things up at about six o'clock, about quarter to six. And on this veranda, which is covered with bougainvillea and hibiscus uh, and so on, with the view out, the birds, the swallows, start playing in the, in the valley. And I sit there, I make my coffee, and I sit there for three hours, stark naked, sorry, but there it is, because I can and no one else is there, uh, etc. Yes. Drinking my coffee, looking out on the valley, thinking my thoughts uh, and so on. And it is perfectly peaceful and I would quite like to spend the rest of my life in that moment doing that thing or as much of it as was practicable um, this is a moment of you know kind of absolute pure happiness I've only discovered it in the last four or five years that I have this sort of after a kind of life of sort of intellectual restlessness you might describe it as this is a I found a place to be and a way of being peaceful um, intellectually and I value it more than I can say and more than I can make any of my family understand. No, but you specified uh, this is so it's Sicily six o'clock in the morning on June the 5th and it's yeah. June the 5th 2022 but it but it might also be 2021 if you were there that year or actually or I'm hoping it's going to be if you go back. exactly you got it 2023 yeah. and 2024 yeah. um, precisely so it is at the round about that week is the week summer begins in Sicily. We uh, two years ago, oh no, it was before the pandemic, so 2019, uh, out on the in a nearby nature reserve called the Vendicary, which has flamingos in it and so on. And we uh, we asked a guide to take us round for a couple of hours because he'd know. And he said, and at one moment he stopped because it had been slightly kind of overcast for a couple of days. And he stopped and he said, summer is comes today. Mm. Summer comes today. And the next morning was June the 5th. I saw it was June the 4th. Mm. And that next morning, it was all perfect for that, for sitting there on that mm. veranda. And you can read, you can maybe even listen to a play on BBC Sounds, which is also a great mm. joy. Um, so but this, it's the peaceful. This, this sounds sounds wonderful. I, I, I must have got advance notice that this was your wonder. And I was... I was worrying away. What did this mean? Was there some event that happened in Sicily? Was there there was a, a carnival, a festival? Was there some moment there that should I be aware of? Because uh, yeah. uh, 
Oh, some people try and tease me with the wonders that they don't <laughs> reveal what they're about. But it's you sitting naked with the swallows flying in and out of the out of the Bougainvillea, and yeah. uh, you uh, on a warm morning in in Sicily. Yeah. And but does it only last at, for six or is it ten o'clock? Would I come and find you in tears, worrying about the woes of the world, or do you still be happy at ten uh, or, no, be, or one o'clock? I'll be happy, time? but. I- no, you're, uh, I'll be I'll be happy, but I will be thinking that about this time things have got to be done and little bits of shopping have got to mm. be done and maybe it's time to kind of be stirred. And then it will be much hotter um, yes. at that time, particularly in this kind of... So it's getting really quite hot then uh, and so on. So you think about, you know, you want to be in the pool and so on. And things yeah. are noisier. The cars have started up on the road about... Um, 400 yards away not very noisy but a little bit of noise and so on and maybe the occasional helicopter going overhead and so on but at mm. six the other thing there is at six o'clock in the morning is that the farmer down the that down the valley he's started work sometimes so you just get the feeling you, you know that um uh, the the Bruegel painting of icarus which Auden yeah. made into a poem it's a bit yeah. like that. It's, you know, it's a bit like kind of, if you look far enough at six o'clock in the morning, maybe Icarus would be dropping into the ocean over there quietly. <laughs> look, I'm sorry to spoil the moment we're having now because we've got to move on to your seventh and final wonder. Yeah, so this is actually, I thought, well, why not actually have one of the seven ancient wonders of the world? Because I've been there and it does epitomise something which is really important to me. I've talked, to, I, I mentioned earlier that I was kind of a historian by training. Mm. And it's true that history has always been the thing that I'm most interested in. So I'm as likely to write about something historical as about something political um, mm. or cultural uh, and so on. And I thought, well, since we're talking about the seven wonders, some of them are no longer there. Some of them are there. One or two I haven't been to. I've never actually managed to get to the pyramids at Giza. Um, but I, I have. Think that's been. the only one that's really roughly the way it was in antiquity. It's still there to be enjoyed or, or whatever. But you've you've selected another one. Just just tell us which one it is. So I've selected the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Um, uh, all there is now is is the base of the temple outside the town of Ephesus um, and the fallen p- pillars which as you know when they these old pillars fall they were made up in kind of coin-like segments and they fall like coins so it's like a kind of somebody's mm. pushed over a, 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 a pile of coins and they fall like that and so on so there's not really very much to see and it's in a kind of the thing itself is now in a sort of rather brackish slightly kind of swampy area outside of town um, Ephesus itself is a wonder. Uh, A lot of it is preserved. The Roman city of Ephesus is preserved, including the place where St. Paul went to address the Ephesians in the... um, in the amphitheatre there. so And they've done some fantastic excavations of the actual town of Ephesus, uh, which they've this put under... This is Turkey now, isn't it? Which is... It, it is, is Turkey, Turkey FS, now, yeah. FS in yeah. Turkey, that's right. They've done some fantastic yeah. excavations where you can see how people lived in the houses. It's really kind of brilliant. It's undercover. Absolutely wonderful. Then outside is this fallen, fallen wonder. Um, so for me, this stands for fascination with archaeology and the uncovering of the ancient world and the uncovering of history but it also stands for something else really important which is I am if I was to divide the world into two camps as people do 
I would divide them into ecumenicals and sectarians. People, right. ecumenicals are people who look for the commonalities in human experience and try to draw it together. And the sectarians are people always looking to find the differences and to emphasize the differences. And to me, being ecumenical is really important. What the Temple of Artemis stands for in that particular place, if you look at the history of goddesses there uh, in Ephesus, is what they call syncretism which is the capacity of us to adopt aspects of other cultures and so on and, and turn them into something that means something to ourselves. So you had Artemis at Ephesus. You'd also had Cybele, who was also a, 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 a pagan goddess. Artemis then becomes Artemis of the many breasts. You see this kind of extraordinary figure of, of the one with... with um, hundreds of breasts adorning her people have said they were other things but actually they're probably breasts um but then after artemis has gone and after diana has gone uh, and so on in the same site you have worship of the virgin mary and you have a tree near there near a shrine to virgin the virgin mary on which people have hung little votives little things asking things you know do this for my son do this mm. for my daughter do this for my ill husband and so on just as they would have done for cybele just as they would have done for artemis in other words mm. It, it represents to me a kind of continuity of human experience and human longing and so on, rather than emphasising all the, oh, well, them, they're Diana worshippers. We, we're Cybele worshippers. We're a totally different kind of kind of law. And no, we, we're Virgin Mary. You're all bloody pagans, etc. And you can all go to hell, etc. No, you've all basically worshipping the same God. Yeah, I think Artemis was a virgin, wasn't she? She was the... She was daughter of Zeus, but she was uh, a sort of a pure goddess compared yeah. to uh, so many of the others who got much more involved in sex. <laughs> well, activity. yeah, well, they got involved, but often not, often against their will, yes. Clive. <laughs> yeah, if Zeus comes to you as a swan, I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> yes, uh, fair enough. Um, there's, there's a lot of choice. Uh, a, a very confusing story, that one, I, I think, but... Uh, uh, but th there it is. Uh, so you've chosen one of the original wonders of the world, as as uh, previously identified, and it sounds lovely. And uh, in fact, all your wonders have been rather uh, fascinating choices, taking some lots of different areas. I have to select uh, the wonder of wonders, the, the the best of your wonders, as I decided on your advocacy. And it's I would say it's particularly <laughs> difficult uh, with this selection. Um, I was touched by the story of the pickup truck. Uh, because it has those those twin uh, references, once to your childhood and once to your near near death or certainly uh, danger. Um, I thought I'd go for Rembrandt's eyes because I'm a big fan of Rembrandt myself. But I think I will I will go with the pickup truck because I think it's going to be an intriguing entry on the list against your name. That <laughs> uh, your wonder of wonders <laughs> is the pickup truck, and when people understand it, uh, they will understand why you selected it. I think so. Uh, uh, David Aradovich, thank you very much for, for sharing your, your Seven Wonders with me. It's been a great pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to my Seven Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform, site or provider you found us on. Thank you very much. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.